Wondery Plus subscribers can binge new seasons of American Scandal early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's a warm spring day in 1983, and Kirtan Ananda, Keith Ham, sits in his simple home office dealing with complicated problems. He tugs his saffron robe over his protruding belly. A line of devotees wait to see him. They bring disputes, questions, and conundrums. And he, as spiritual leader of New Vrindavan, must solve them all. Preferably using sage words backed up with quotations from Vedic scriptures. So far today, he served as a marriage counselor, a veterinarian, psychologist, and financial manager. All in a day's work. But nothing has prepared him for what Dan Reed is about to say. Dan is a short, wiry devotee in his mid-twenties. He's got a neatly trimmed beard and a legendary temper. He walks in, drops to his hands and knees, and presses his forehead to the floor. Then he rises and sits in front of Keith. Maharaj, I've come today to tell you something. Dan sits quietly for a moment, appearing to collect his thoughts. Finally, he leans in and speaks in a firm, quiet voice. I'm going to kill Chuck St. Dennis. I'm not here to ask for your permission. I just thought you should know in advance. Keith is stunned as Dan continues. He raped my wife, so he should die, right? Keith rocks back and forth gently. This could be an opportunity to solve a big problem. Chuck St. Dennis arrived in New Vrindavan four years ago, hoping for a new start. But lately, Chuck is making waves. Gurus are supposed to be celibate, and Chuck has accused Keith of having sex with young construction workers on the commune, some of them teenagers. Chuck challenged Keith in front of others, loudly. And that's a problem for Keith, because what Chuck said is true. In fact, the truth is even worse. Keith is secretly molesting boys at the commune school. If Chuck finds out, he's liable to go to the police. Keith has already protected other pedophiles. One of the commune's teachers molested several boys. Keith sent him to India and told the parents to remain silent. Keith intimidates everyone into silence. But he can't seem to silence Chuck St. Dennis. Chuck talks too much. It would be most auspicious if he were to disappear. Still, Dan's story about Chuck raping his wife doesn't quite track. I know this is difficult for you, but your wife had a consensual affair with Chuck. When was it, two years ago? It was an open secret at the commune. I know they had an affair. But then he raped her. He went around bragging about it. And how do you know this? Tirta told me. Keith nods slowly. Mm, now it makes sense. Tirta is Thomas Drescher, a Vietnam vet who came back with medals on his chest and demons in his head. He's known as the commune's chief enforcer. Tirta hates Chuck. He thinks Chuck cheated him on a business deal. So Keith figures that Tirta is stirring up Dan in the hopes that Dan will do his dirty work. Keith suppresses a smile. It's a clever plan, except for one flaw. Dan doesn't have the brains or the guts to pull it off. You're making a serious charge. You do have the right to seek vengeance if Chuck raped your wife. The Vedic scriptures say an aggressor must be killed. Dan nods in vigorous agreement. But these things must be done delicately. You don't know what you're doing. Have Tirta take care of it. Dan exits, contented. 
Keith goes to the open window and looks out at the property, his property. No matter how many times he looks at the view, he still feels a sense of awe. Green hills, manicured gardens, workshops, a dairy, a spectacular palace covered in marble and gold. Hundreds of devotees busily working. Without him, there would be nothing. He leans out to breathe the country air. A shaft of light caresses his face. Even the sun does his bidding. Power. It feels good. American Scandal is sponsored by Audible. A room locked from the inside. A dead body, but no signs of injury or struggle. The deceased, a devoted family man, successful industrialist, and generous philanthropist. Everyone around him seemingly innocent, but hiding a secret past. In four sentences, I've grabbed your attention. And this is the power of classic mysteries and thrillers from Audible, like Esquire Magazine's number one best mystery novel of all time, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. As an Audible member, you can choose one title every month to keep forever from the entire catalog of classics, bestsellers, new releases, and Audible originals, ready for listening whenever, wherever on the Audible app. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. That's audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum Card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Scandal. In our last episode, Swami Prabhupada appointed 11 men of equal standing to lead the movement after his death. But as soon as he died, a battle for power and control broke out. Unconcerned with laws or social norms, the men appointed themselves gurus and turned their devotees into drug smugglers and scam artists to fund the expansion of their temples. But Keith Ham, the temple leader in West Virginia, may be the most ambitious of them all. He's built a thriving Krishna community, and if it's threatened, he'll do whatever is necessary to protect it. This is Episode 4, The Whistleblower. Chuck St. Dennis is sweating, but not because he's scared. He has no idea that two miles away, Tirta and Dan Reed are plotting his murder. He's sweating because he's out in a field, planting seedlings. He likes manual labor. And at six foot four and 220 pounds, he's well suited to it. Working the soil makes him happy. And if that makes him a simple man, he's okay with it. His life has been way too complicated. He's glad to have put drug dealing and the Laguna Beach craziness behind him. People were killed. The temple leaders went to jail. And Chuck was lucky he didn't go to jail too. The new Vrindavan commune in West Virginia felt like a good place to start over. Clean air, clean living though not entirely clean. He's a fringy, 
not a strict devotee. He still likes beer and weed and the occasional line of coke. But he's fallen in love with Deborah, the commune's nurse, and they have a six-month-old baby girl. For the first time in his life, he feels like he's got a real future. He even has his own business. The field he's working belongs to him, even though it's on commune property. Deborah inherited $50,000, and they made a deal with Keith. He sold them a few acres to start a nursery, and they agreed to give him half the profits from the operation. Chuck's calling his new business Blue Boy Nursery, after the blue god Krishna. Chuck loves living on the commune, and he believes in the Hare Krishna movement. But after his experience in Laguna Beach, Chuck vowed that he'd never blindly support a temple leader again. So when he heard rumors about Keith having sex when he's supposed to be celibate, he refused to stay silent. The hypocrisy galls him. Chuck sets a seedling into a furrow and tamps down the dirt around it. He sees it as a reminder. Things take time to grow. He's planted the seeds. He's confronted Keith, spoken out against him. Maybe others will speak up too, and Keith will resign, and they'll all live happily ever after. He laughs to himself, a grown man, still believing in fairy tale endings. Tirta sits in his truck outside Swami Keith's office, drumming his fingers on the dashboard. Dan Reed has now been inside for 10 minutes talking to the Swami about wanting to kill Chuck St. Dennis. Tirta's never liked Dan much. He's a hothead, no self-control. But Tirta doesn't like Chuck St. Dennis even more. A year ago, Chuck cheated him in a business deal, and Tirta still hasn't forgotten the insult. That's why he told Dan the rumor about Chuck raping Dan's wife. He figured he and Dan would give Chuck a beatdown, make a lesson out of him, don't mess with the enforcer. But instead, Dan went crazy wanting to blow the guy's head off with a shotgun. Hopefully, Keith will talk some sense into him, talk him down. Tirta may not like the guy, but he doesn't want to see Chuck dead. The door opens, and Dan emerges. Tirta's relieved to see a big smile on Dan's face. He knew Keith would be persuasive. Dan opens the passenger door and hops in. He said, I have the right to seek vengeance, Tirta, but he doesn't want me to do it. Tirta rolls his head from side to side, stretching out his neck. Well, that's good. He wants you to do it. He's afraid I'll mess it up. He says, you know how to do it right. Tirta is stunned. He thought Keith would talk Dan out of it. But if Keith wants Chuck killed, Tirta has to do it. Keith is the spiritual master, and Tirta is the commune's chief enforcer. He turns to Dan and looks him in the eye. Okay, then. Let's figure out how we're going to do this. Steve Bryant sits on a boulder overlooking the rushing water in Three Rivers, California. It's a beautiful spot, and he knows he should feel happy and at peace, but he doesn't. Ever since he moved his family away from the West Virginia commune, it's been nothing but misery. While Three Rivers is a picturesque town with a Krishna community, his wife does nothing but cry. She cries because she misses Nuvrindavan, and especially Swami Keith. Every one of her sobs feels like a knife stabbing Steve in the heart. Even from 2,500 miles away, Keith holds Steve's wife under his spell. Steve tried talking to the other devotees. Surely some of them must see through Keith as well. But they acted like Steve was the fraud. They told him he wasn't spiritually evolved, that he shouldn't listen to rumors, that Keith is the direct path to Krishna and is incapable of doing anything wrong. So Steve gave up. Keith is powerful and charismatic, and he's a nobody. 
Leaving New Vrindavan and starting over seemed like a good idea. He thought if he got Jane away from Keith, their marriage would improve. But it hasn't, and now he feels like an outsider in his own home. They have two children, plus Jane's son from a previous relationship. How will the kids ever look up to him if even his wife doesn't? He feels like all he ever does is try, fail, and start over. He sighs and tosses his stick into the water. He remembers what his mother used to say, no matter where you go, there you are, and here he is, failing once again. Maybe they should go back to New Vrindavan. Maybe Keith is right. He needs to fully surrender. Forget about his anger at Keith. Be the best devotee he possibly can. Maybe then things will finally go his way. A few days after Dan's meeting with Keith, Tirta is having second thoughts about the plan. Dan is out of control. Tirta wouldn't trust him to milk a cow, so why would he take his word about what Keith said? If he's really going to kill Chuck St. Dennis, then he needs to get the order directly from Keith. He drops by Keith's office and asks him point blank, Did you really authorize Dan to kill this guy? Do you want me to be involved? Keith nods. Chuck St. Dennis is spitting in his spiritual master's face. You can only offend the spiritual master so much. Then Krishna becomes angry. Which leaves Tirta confused. He thought he was supposed to kill Chuck because he allegedly raped Dan's wife. But instead, it's about Chuck offending Keith. But it doesn't really matter why Keith wants Chuck dead. All that matters is what Keith wants and that Tirta is to do it. After all, he is the commune's chief enforcer. He's the only one qualified to do the deed. And he's honored to carry out his spiritual master's orders. Two days later, on a misty morning just after sunrise, Nick Sacrios pulls on his running shoes. A 45-year-old with kind eyes and a toothy grin, he's the medic for the commune. And his morning runs are how he clears his head and gets centered before what's often a hectic day. Nick's story is similar to that of many of the residents. He started out on a conventional path, then his life took a detour. Nick was going to be a doctor, but after graduating from medical school, he became an addict instead. He was arrested and tried to get clean, but he slipped again and again, eventually ending up losing his medical license and serving two years in prison. He then found his way to New Vrindavan and discovered that rural life agreed with him. Since his arrival, he stayed clean. He leads a healthy life, running five miles a day, and he loves learning about the healing herbs that grow on the grounds. Chuck St. Dennis's wife, Deborah, is his nurse, and they're a good team. They do their best to treat patients when they can and send them to the town hospital when they can't. Nick may not have the fancy houses and cars that his classmates from medical school have, but he likes his life, and he likes the new Vrindavan residents. Except for one, Thomas Drescher, Tirta. A few months ago, Tirta began inviting himself along on Nick's morning runs. At first, Nick thought it would be good to have someone to push him to train harder. But Tirta's energy is unsettling. He relishes telling gory stories about the people he killed in Vietnam. There's just something not right about that guy. Today, when he shows up again, unannounced, he's even more wound up than usual. As they set out for their run, he starts railing against Chuck St. Dennis. He says Chuck has ripped him off, didn't pay him enough when he sold him his house. Nick tries to defend Chuck, but Tirta cuts him off, saying, there are people on the commune who want Chuck gone, 
Nick ends his run feeling more tense than when he began. He thinks to himself again, there's something wrong with Tirta. Chuck St. Dennis lies on the ground, looking up at the billowing clouds. He's bone-tired, but he's smiling. His fledgling business, Blue Boy Nursery, looks like it just might be viable. He's had the usual setbacks and growing pains, but he's feeling optimistic about the future. He lazily lifts his head when he hears a motorcycle in the distance, then quickly jumps to his feet when he sees it's Dan Reed heading his way. He instinctively looks around for cover. It's been two years since he had an affair with Dan's wife, but everyone on the commune knows Dan holds grudges. So far, Chuck has managed to avoid him. Plight nod when they pass each other in town. Bit of small talk on the grounds, but that's the extent of it. So as Dan gets closer, all Chuck can think is that crazy fool's gonna run me down. But Dan pulls to a stop, and he smiles and waves. Chuck gives him a cautious wave in return. Dan looks around. Nursery's looking good, Chuck. Thanks. Chuck wonders what Dan wants. He never drops by like this, and he seems nervous. So, Chuck, I, I thought maybe you'd want to come by for a, a beer later tonight. A beer. And a few lines of Coke. Well, okay, now you're talking. Yeah, I got some really good shit. Um, I'm living at the artist studio. Come by later tonight. The rational voice in Chuck's head says, if ever there was a time to just say no, this is it. But maybe it's time to bury the hatchet. Okay, sure. Why not? I'll come by around 10. Great. See you then, buddy. But Chuck is still cautious. Buddy, huh? The new Vrindavan art studio sits near the top of a hill. With its large, north-facing windows, it's a beautiful spot for artists to draw inspiration. There's a stream a few hundred yards from the art studio. And while Dan is talking to Chuck that night, Tirta is standing in the middle of that stream. He's created a dam out of a pile of rocks to divert the water and expose the stream bed. Tirta is digging a hole. When he fills the hole, he'll topple the dam and the stream will resume its natural course. He plans to fill the hole with Chuck St. Dennis's body. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
When Chuck St. Dennis walks out the door on the night of June 10th, 1983, he tells his wife a lie. He says Dan Reed owes him some money and wants to pay his debt, so Chuck's going to meet Dan at a bar in town. Instead, he drives up a rutted dirt road to New Vrindavan's art studio. There's a faint voice in the back of Chuck's mind, whispering that something isn't right. After all the years of chanting and spiritual study, the one voice Chuck should listen to is the one he ignores. The persistent whisper of common sense, the primal instinct that can detect danger. He pushes it down and bounces along the last stretch of the rutted road to the studio. He parks, gets out of his truck. The only sounds are the babbling of the stream and the distant hoot of an owl. The door to the studio is open. As he walks towards it, Tirta steps into the doorframe. He's holding a pistol. Chuck hears footsteps behind him. He turns and sees Dan Reed standing beside a tree with a rifle pointing at his head. Then he hears Tirta's voice commanding Dan to fire. A flash pierces the night, then another and another and another. Chuck knows he's been hit, but his mind struggles to catch up. He staggers towards his truck. If he can just get behind the wheel, get back home. But then he sees Dan run past him like a blur. A moment later, he's back. He hands Tirta a kitchen knife. Chuck tells his body to run, but it won't obey. Tirta stabs him till the blade breaks off. Chuck is still on his feet. Dan runs away again, and Chuck manages to stagger a few feet towards his truck. He hears the terrifying roar of a wounded animal and realizes it's him making the sound. Dan returns with a screwdriver and a hammer. Tirta grabs a screwdriver and jabs it into Chuck's back. Then Tirta swings the hammer at Chuck's skull till Chuck finally falls to his knees. Tirta leans in and orders him to chant. Chuck tries to remember the words, tries to get his lips to form them. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. The hammer lands again. Chuck collapses to the ground and finally his body stops moving. Is he dead? Dan asks, shaking. I think so. Why did you tell him the chant? To free his soul. They drag Chuck's body to the hole in the stream bed. As Dan crouches down to wrap the body in a plastic tarp, Chuck's eyes suddenly open and stare at him. He's confused. His lips quiver, then he speaks. Don't do that, you'll smother me. Dan freezes in terror. Tirta pushes Dan aside. He finishes covering Chuck with a tarp and hands Dan a shovel and grabs one for himself. They fill the hole with dirt. Then Tirta topples the dam, covering the grave with rocks. Tirta leans on his shovel, catches his breath, and gives Dan a nod and a smile. The next morning, Keith sits in the commune's accounting office. It's on the second floor of a utilitarian building, but it's one of Keith's favorite spots because that's where he does the books. He has teams of pickers in all 50 states. Pickers are the devotees who go on the road and run scams. They solicit for non-existent charities and sell counterfeit bumper stickers and hats at sporting events. He makes notation in a ledger and smiles. Last week was very good. The pickers brought in almost $100,000. That makes over a million so far this year. There's a knock at the door, and two young women solemnly enter. They're two of his best pickers. They hold a garland between them, made of flowers and $100 bills. They bow down and drape the garland around Keith's shoulders, then back away out of the room. Keith smiles. Life is good. Chuck St. Dennis is gone, and money is rolling in. Hare Krishna.
June 11th is a Saturday morning. Normally, Deborah Gear would be relaxing with a cup of tea, but instead she's on the phone, frantic. Chuck didn't come home last night. He said he was meeting up with Dan at a bar. Neighbor volunteers to drive up to Dan's place to see what he knows, and Dan confirms that Chuck was supposed to meet him, but never showed up. Deborah and her neighbor drive all over the commune, stopping at every sharp curve to peer down into the gullies and ravines. Deborah is afraid he ran off the road, and he's injured and trapped in his truck. But after two hours of searching, they come up empty-handed. When Chuck hasn't shown up by nightfall, panic sets in. She drives to Moundsville and files a missing person report. When she gets home, she can't sleep and spends the night pacing, dozing fitfully in an armchair. Shortly after sunrise, she calls Dr. Nick, her boss at the commune's clinic. As soon as he picks up, she breaks into sobs, telling him that Chuck has disappeared and she's afraid he could be dead. Nick tries to console her, but she's hysterical. He tells her he's on his way over. But just as he walks out the door, Tirta appears in his jogging suit, asking Nick if he's ready for a run. Tirta smiles. Something about the set of his mouth and the coldness of his eyes makes Nick take a step back. And suddenly, Nick knows. Nick confronts Tirta, saying, You did it, didn't you? You killed Chuck St. Dennis. Tirta's smile flickers for a moment, then broadens. On second thought, he says, Let's skip the run today. Go for a walk. He turns and strolls away, like he expects Nick to follow him. Nick hesitates. If he walks into the woods with Tirta, he might not come back. He has to know the truth, and this might be his only chance. Ten minutes later, Tirta confesses. He's not emotional about it, nor does he seem to want forgiveness. He explains that he's killed men before, but this time was unusual, and he wants Nick's opinion as a doctor. They shot Chuck 12 times, and he was still on his feet. He wants to know how it's medically possible for a guy to still be alive after taking that many hits, and the sounds Chuck was making, animal sounds like he's never heard before. He figures it was Chuck's karma being released. That's why he told him to chant. Nick doesn't know what to say. His skin feels clammy and his mouth is dry. He's walking through the hills, listening to a man lay out the details of a violent murder with the sort of nonchalance you'd expect from someone sharing a family recipe. But Tirta is relaying more than details of a murder. There's a subtext. Feel lucky that I am sharing this with you. And don't you dare share it with anyone else. Nick tries to think of something to say, but his lips are numb. A branch snaps under his foot and he flinches. Tirta laughs. When they finish their walk and Tirta finally leaves, Nick is shaking. How will he face Deborah? If he tells her, she'll want to go to the cops, and Tirta will kill them both. Nick remembers the day he graduated from medical school, when he stood and recited the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. It's too late for that. So much harm has already been done. His drug addiction, going to jail, losing his medical license, and now he'll have to lie to Deborah, his nurse, his friend. He prays to Krishna for strength, but all he can think of is Krishna looking at him, bemused. Why would Krishna give him the strength to lie and protect a murderer? New Vrindavan looks spectacular from the air. The stands of hardwood trees, the temple spires, the lake, and especially the golden palace are awe-inspiring. 
but Deborah Gear's not in the mood for awe. Her face is grim and ashen as she peers out the passenger window of the two-seater Cessna. It's been two days since Chuck disappeared, and she's chartered a plane to search for the wreckage of his truck. But she doesn't find it. When the truck is finally found, it's parked on a residential street across the river in Ohio. The keys are in the ignition. The local police take a report of the missing owner, but they aren't really interested in investigating. A friend suggests Deborah speak to the county deputy sheriff, Deputy Westfall. He's been keeping tabs on the Christianist for years. Maybe he'll take her seriously. Deborah calls Westfall and makes an appointment to see him that afternoon. Deborah's never been a fan of cops. Just being in the sheriff's station makes her skin crawl. But when she sits across the desk from Deputy Westfall, she starts to relax a bit. He's gentle and respectful toward her and clearly very intelligent. When he asks a question, he listens intently to her answer and makes notes. So when he asks if Chuck had any enemies, she doesn't hold back. She tells him about Chuck's affair with Dan Reed's wife and the business dispute with Tirta. Westfall sits up when he hears the names. He's got files on both of them, and it sounds like they both have a reason to want Chuck dead. Dan seems like more of a follower, but Tirta is certainly capable of planning and carrying out a murder. He's anxious to start investigating. Deborah allows herself a faint glimmer of hope. Even if her husband never comes back, at least his killers might be brought to justice. Two days later, Westfall is on his way to meet with the county prosecutor, and he's feeling good. He thinks he's assembled a strong case against Tirta and Dan, but his greater hope is that it'll lead to Keith. He's convinced that Keith knows about the murder, maybe even ordered it. Nothing happens on the commune without Keith knowing about it. If Westfall can get Tirta or Dan to take a plea bargain and turn against Keith, he'll finally be able to bring down the Krishna's criminal operation. Westfall sits across a conference table from the prosecutor and lays out the evidence in exacting detail. But the prosecutor is unimpressed. As he sees it, there are plenty of suspects. Chuck St. Dennis was a womanizer. He has four kids from three different women. There are probably lots of cuckolded husbands who want to put a bullet in his head. And before he got to New Vrindavan, he was a drug dealer at the Laguna Beach Temple, where mafia informants gunned each other down. Maybe he knew too much, and they wanted him silenced. Maybe he was just tired of Deborah and ran off with someone else. But the biggest hole in Westfall's case is that they haven't found Chuck's body. No body, no charges. Westfall leaves the meeting, cursing the day he decided to become a cop. He gets in his cruiser and heads back to Moundsville, dreading what he has to do next. Tell Deborah there's not going to be an investigation. He saw the hope in her eyes when he said he believed her and that he'd nail Tirta and Dan for the murder. The system has failed her, and that makes him feel like a failure. So he vows to bring Tirta and Dan to justice, no matter how long it takes. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Chapter 
Deborah Gear's alarm rings at 4 a.m. It's been over a month since Chuck disappeared, and she's trying to get on with her life. She can't seem to sleep through the night, so waking at 4 is easy. She goes to 4.30 a.m. services every day. She chants for hours. It's how she gets through her grief. She works at the clinic and tries to run Chuck's nursery as well. Nick has been dropping by to help her. He tends the land and takes plants into town to sell on the weekends. They're becoming close. There are even moments when she forgets everything that's happened, and life almost feels normal. At least she doesn't have to see Tirta's face with those cold, dead eyes. He's disappeared, probably laying low somewhere. She gets out of bed and wraps herself in her saffron robe. She puts thoughts of Tirta out of her mind. Move on, she tells herself. Focus on Krishna. She wishes it wasn't so hard. Tirta has spent the past few weeks living in a nearby town. After Chuck's murder, Keith told him to go away for a while, and he's obliged. But he's got too much time on his hands. Time to replay the murder again and again in his head. Time to worry about the mistakes he might have made. He should have come up with a better way of getting rid of Chuck's body. He needs advice. That's why he's waiting outside Nick's front door just before sunrise. When Nick emerges, Tirta smiles. Hey, Doc, going for a run? Nick's not happy to see him, but Tirta doesn't care. He just has a quick question that requires Nick's medical expertise. What's the best way to dissolve a body? Nick looks away. Never thought about it. Tirta suggests he starts thinking about it. Nick's voice is shaking when he answers. Maybe lime? But Tirta doesn't have any lime. Would acid do it? Nick says he guesses it would, and Tirta walks away satisfied. A few days later, Tirta takes six gallons of muriatic acid from the commune's workshop. He and Dan rebuild the dam to divert the stream. Then they bore holes into the mud covering Chuck's body and pour the acid in. No body, no charges. But now he has a new problem. Dr. Nick knows too much. A few nights later, Nick is alone at the town laundromat, absently folding his clothes. He's worried about Deborah. She's lost weight and is driving herself so hard she's going to get sick. He's got to do something. But what? He doesn't know where to search for the body, and even if he did, it may be dissolved by now. The secret he's carrying is burning a hole in his heart. Nick folds the last of his laundry. As he's about to exit, Tirta walks in. Nick's whole body tenses. He's desperate to leave, but Tirta's blocking the doorway. He just stands there, smiling. Finally, he tells Nick to get into his truck and they'll go get a beer. Nick can't believe the craziness of it all. Is this how it ends? He knows if he gets in that truck, he'll end up dead. As Nick struggles to think of a way out, he sees a man walking down the sidewalk. When he walks in, Nick says a silent prayer of thanks. It's the owner of the laundromat telling them it's closing time. Nick suggests they all leave together. Now, if he disappears, Nick's got a witness that saw him with Tirta. Tirta must be thinking the same thing because he gets in his truck and drives away. The next day, Nick tells Deborah everything. She begs him to go to Deputy Westfall, but Nick doesn't see the point. They won't investigate without a body, and if Tirta finds out he's gone to the authorities, he'll kill them both. As the days pass, Deborah continues to lose weight. Her eyes become sunken and hollow. 
Her kids ask if Daddy is ever coming back, and she doesn't know what to tell them. It breaks Nick's heart. He can't stay silent any longer. Deputy Westfall is sitting at his desk on a warm day in June when Deborah Gear walks in. The commune's medic is with her, and they both look scared. Nick tells Westfall about Tirta's confession. Westfall is almost impressed. Tirta's got brass balls to confess and think Nick will stay silent. He compliments Nick on his bravery and thanks them both profusely. This is the break he's been waiting for for years. He'll put Dan and Tirta away, and if he plays his cards right, he'll finally get the grand prize, Keith Ham. He had his suspicions, but now he's convinced Keith orchestrated the murder. A blade of grass doesn't move at New Vrindavan without Keith giving it permission. The first time Westfall met Keith, he thought he was just eccentric. But now he's come to realize that Keith is a sociopath who doesn't care one bit about his followers. Westfall has spent years gathering evidence against Keith. He's even studied how cults work, and Keith definitely fits the profile of a cult leader. And now, after more than 10 years, he's within spitting distance of bringing down the whole operation. He can go back to the prosecutor. He's finally got the evidence he needs. Four days later, Westfall stands outside Deborah's door. He has to admit the commune is a beautiful spot. The green hills, the golden palace. But he's not here to take a tour. He has news to deliver, and it's not good. When Deborah opens the door, Westfall looks her in the eye and tells her straight. The prosecutor has declined to press charges. He said Nick is what's considered an unreliable witness because of his prior drug conviction. It doesn't matter that Nick is clean now or he's willing to testify about Tirta's confession. The prosecutor is an elected official, and for him, winning re-election is more important than meeting out justice. He only takes cases he believes he can easily win. Deborah is devastated and furious, but so is Westfall. He's failed Deborah again, and he hates it. Westfall walks back to his car defeated. He looks out over the commune. How could such a beautiful place be filled with such evil. Keith Ham strolls through the Golden Palace, known throughout the world as the American Taj Mahal. Without him, it wouldn't exist. He stops in front of the elaborate throne where a life-size mannequin of Swami Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, stares serenely. He's finally got the Swami just where he wants him. A silent, lifeless prop who will never contradict him. Keith is the highest spiritual master, a god who is not to be questioned or criticized. Chuck St. Dennis tried and met the fate he deserved. Anyone else who wants to criticize him will think twice, exactly as Keith has planned. Now Keith can focus on the business of expanding the commune and increasing his power. He made millions smuggling drugs. He runs scams across the U.S. and Canada, and now he's gotten away with murder. The sky is the limit. But dark clouds are rolling in. Moving back to New Vrindavan is Steve Bryant. From Wondery, this is episode four of eight of the Hare Krishna murders for American Scandal. On the next episode, the Berkeley Temple is in chaos after its leader melts down. Meanwhile, in West Virginia, community enforcers confront Steve Bryant at gunpoint as he uncovers evidence that the gurus are frauds.
If you'd like to learn more about the Hare Krishna murders, we recommend the book Killing for Krishna, The Danger of Deranged Devotion from Henry Doktorsky. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Scandal is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. This episode is written by Steve Chivers, edited by Andrew Stelzer. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. OK, so um... not this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.